There's a scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and it says that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the word of God is, it's our food. And just like your body needs food in order to survive, your soul needs the word of God in order to survive. That is one of the reasons that the preaching of God's word is so important. It's one of the reasons that being a part of, let me rephrase that, being committed to a local church like this is so important where you can every single week, as the church has been doing for thousands of years at this point, where we can come together and sit under the preaching of God's word. It's not everything we do on a Sunday. There are many important things that we do on a Sunday. But perhaps the most important thing, and I'm not just saying that because I'm preaching now, perhaps the most important thing, and I've always thought said this, is that we sit under week in and week out under the preaching of God's word. And then we think about it, and then we apply that word to our life from week to week. It's how we grow as Christians. It's how we, it's how we bring glory and honor to God. I say all that just to say it's a privilege and it's an honor to be able to uh, lately come and, and preach again every Sunday. Uh, some difficult and sad circumstances that, that led to me being invited back to come and preach, but, but I'm very thankful to, to be here. And, and I've, I've made this sort of clear to Rick, probably not as, as clear as sometimes he would like in regards to my availability but for the foreseeable future it's it's my desire to make sure that that you're hearing the word of God preached faithfully on on Sunday and so you know he announced in the next few weeks a, a couple a couple men are going to come and preach to you uh, in my role at, at K-Love Radio where I work I oversee a team of uh, of a, a team that answers calls that come in from listeners to K-Love Radio. And a lot of those calls that, that come in, I think there's half a million a year that come in, uh, they will get escalated sometimes to what we call our pastoral team. And I oversee that team. We answer questions about the Bible. We, we deal with crisis calls that might come in. Uh, we give people uh, some counsel from, from the Word of God. And uh, it's a very good team. It's a, almost an all-star team of people who know and understand and are able to, to speak God's word. So those two men, Rick Hopp and Elijah Layfield, just to give you a little background, they're, they're two of those men uh, that, have, that have earned my trust and that I believe to be faithful ministers of the word. Uh, Rick Hopp uh, served uh, for a while under Alistair Begg in his church, um, if you're familiar with that name. If not, it doesn't matter. Uh, and Elijah Layfield uh, was an associate pastor to John Piper in his church, Bethlehem Baptist up in Minnesota. Uh, so they're reputable men. Uh, they know how to handle faithfully the word of God. And so I think Rick's coming. You already said it. But Mr. Hopp next Sunday, and then I'll be here. And then Mr. Layfield the next Sunday, and then I'll be here. And, uh, and then we can talk about whether or not you like them or not. And if you like them, maybe we'll have them come again. So that's where we're... Uh, 
that's where we're at. But again, all that just to say that uh, I'm so thankful and, and, and wake up Sunday morning uh, looking forward to, to being with you and opening up God's Word. So we're going to wrap up this book of, of Ephesians. Uh, God willing, in a, in a couple weeks, I'd like to begin working through the book of Ecclesiastes with you. So um, excited about that. If you want to begin reading in the weeks to come the book of Ecclesiastes, you could to begin to prepare for our time together in that book. Uh, but here we are wrapping up this book that, that Paul wrote nearly 2,000 years ago to this local church in Ephesus. And uh, he has some, some final parting words. And it's always, I think, fascinating to pay attention to how these, how these authors, how these letter writers uh, wrap up their letters. What, what is said at the end of a letter is certainly going to leave some kind of an impression. So what did Paul choose to say as he wrapped up this communication with that church? We're going to find out today. But first, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you, through your word and by your spirit, that you would teach us now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please open those Bibles if you haven't already to Ephesians chapter 6. I'll give you an outline of the text before us. There's two parts here. Part 1, verses 10 through 20. And verses 10 through 20 contain Paul's final exhortation, his final instruction to the Ephesians. And then the second part, verses 21 through 24, are Paul's final greetings for the Ephesians, his final words. So let's start by looking into Paul's, his final exhortation. And he summarizes it in verses 10 and 11. And then he gives the reason for it in verse 12. And then the resources to do it in verses 14 through 20. So let's begin with the summary of his exhortation. Verses 10 and 11. Look with me at verse 10. It begins with the word, finally. Okay, so here he is at the end of his letter. He has said so much, and here's the last thing. The last thing Paul writes. It is his last. He's given a lot of exhortations. It's his last one. And what's his his final directive for that church, it is be strong. Be strong. It, if you've happened to have read through the entire Bible, you know that that exhortation is repeated over from Genesis to Revelation. It's over and over and over again. We're called as God's people to be strong. Don't be weak. Be strong. Don't be a coward. Be strong. Don't shrink back. Be brave as a Christian. Be courageous as a Christian. Be strong. Strength is important for the Christian life, evidently. Uh, Christian, your, your friends 
they need you to be strong. Your family needs you to be strong. Your church needs you to be strong. Your very life, the life that God has called each of you to live, here's one thing it requires, strength. And so no wonder we're told over and over again and here again to be strong. Paul goes on, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So this strength does not come from within. This strength comes from without. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, which is not usually what the world means when it talks about strength and calls you or encourages you to be strong. There is a strength that can come from within. We've all experienced that. There, there is a strength that, that comes out when we dig deep within ourselves. When I've coached football before, it's something that I've yelled from the sideline over and over and over again, dig deep, dig deep. Like you've got more in you. The game's not over. Be strong. Dig deep within yourself. So there is a strength that can be pulled from within. But here's the thing. That supply that you have for strength within, that supply is relatively low compared to the supply of strength you have in Christ. So this strength that Paul is talking about, it's in the Lord. It does not come from within. It comes from without. Depending on your maturity level and depending on your experience and depending on your personality, you may independently have the potential to be very strong, very strong emotionally, mentally. You may possess that. But as a Christian, if you draw strength from Christ then you can be as strong in this life as it is possible to be. Which is something else to think about. If you learn how to draw your strength from Christ, then you can be as strong in this life as it is possible to be. But only as we learn to rely on Christ for strength. And keep in mind, when we get down to verse 14, Paul's going to get practical and tell us exactly how we do that. So it's not just draw your strength from Christ because we want to know what does that mean? What does that look like? How do I do that? Well, rest assured, Paul's going to tell us. But for now, Paul is just, he's just summarizing his parting admonition. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. More on that in verse 14 that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he repeats it in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand is another way of saying be strong. So in case it's not clear yet, here is Paul's exhortation, 
boiled down. Be strong in the Lord. And then he'll make clear by putting on the armor of God. Be strong in the Lord by putting on the armor of God. That's the exhortation. Now, what about the why? Why is that important? Why do we need to be strong? What is the reason for this admonition? Well, that's what Paul describes next in verse 12. He introduced the reason at the end of verse 11 when he said that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But he elaborates in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, Christians who are in Christ are in a war zone, according to those verses. May feel like that, may not. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. But this says that Christians, those of us who are in Christ, we are in a war zone. We've all seen images of a war zone before. If you've ever turned on the news, you can, you can find images of a, of a war that's going on today. So if we're all familiar with what a, a war zone looks like. But this war zone, though it's just as dramatic, think of those images, it's just as dramatic, but of course it's not physical. This is not a physical war. It's not against, that's what Paul means, it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood. It's spiritual. It's against, and here are the enemies of this war. Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's against the cosmic powers over darkness and the spiritual forces of evil. It is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle that claims the souls of many people. And Paul is essentially saying only the strong will survive. So be strong. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It's a war. It's a battle. You see the imagery. We must be strong. It's going to require armor. Okay, we're understanding what Paul is talking about. Listen, I don't know about you, but I've been a Christian long enough and I've been in ministry long enough to see many people who once professed Christ and now they're far from him. I bet most of you can think of some people too. And you remember when they, with their mouth at least, they professed Christ. And now I have a list of those individuals who are far from them. For me, it's many who were in ministry 
went to school with them and trained for ministry. Watched them get into ministry. And now they don't even follow Christ anymore. Not only are they not in ministry anymore, they don't even call themselves Christians anymore. You know, what happened? What happened to them? Well, at the very least, I think we could say that they appear to be casualties of this war that Paul is describing. This helps us take it seriously. Maybe something changes. I pray something changes in each of their lives. But at this point, they appear to be casualties of this war. And if you and I don't take Paul's words to heart here, then we're fools. We're fools. So let us be mindful and capture the tone of Paul's words here. That in fact we are in a war. That there's a devil who prowls like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. That there are powers and principalities and rulers and authorities that are for evil, not for good. And so we must be strong. And we should be primed as we're reading Paul's words. We want to know how do we be strong in this battle. Paul is saying you won't be able to stand against the devil unless you take this exhortation seriously. And if I could say it this way, and I hope you wouldn't find it offensive in regards to uh, the power of the devil. I hope we understand that the power of Christ is greater, of course. But the power of the devil, it is a great power. And friends, you've got to know that on your own, you're absolutely no match for him. You're no match for him. He is stronger than you. He is smarter than you. You will buckle and you will give in to temptation. You will forsake your first love. You're not better than King David. You're not better than Moses. You're not better than Samson. So if you play this proudly, not in humility and be strong in the Lord, if you play this proudly, you will be overcome by this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil. You will make shipwreck of your faith. It's going to happen. If you just look within for strength. And if you rely on yourself. And you disconnect yourself from God and from his people and, and on and on. If you don't follow Paul's exhortation here to know I need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Okay, you might be thinking, I get it. Now, how exactly do I do that? What does this look like? How do I draw from and exert that strength? And that's exactly what Paul works out in verses 14 through 20. So here we have verses 14 through 20. Here are the resources for the exhortation. This is the how. We should be ready to hear this now. 
Right before these verses, you will remember in verse 13, Paul said, take up the whole armor of God. That's the metaphor that Paul uses to help us picture what it looks like to be strong in the Lord. Okay, to be strong in the Lord, I've got to, I've got to put on this suit before I go out to battle. I need to dress myself in this armor. The Greek word he uses for armor is panoplia. It refers to all the equipment of a fully armed soldier. The soldier doesn't run out into battle in a pair of shorts. Okay, he's got all kinds of equipment. He's got all kinds of equipment because he understands what he's getting himself into and what it's going to take to survive. So that's the exact word that Paul uses here. So Paul's going to list six pieces of, of equipment that Christ has given us that's important. Six pieces of equipment that Christian you have right now. Isn't like you got to go find these things. Okay, they're on the shelf right now. You don't have to look for them. You don't have to search. They are available to you. So it's on you if you just go out into this battle and you don't take this equipment with you, if you don't put this armor on. So he's going to list six of them. Christ has already given us these things so that we can be strong and stand firm. Number one, the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Verse 14a, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Veritas is the Latin word for truth. When... In 2008, my family and some friends, we planted a church in California, and we named the church Veritas. Uh, no one could ever pronounce it right. They'd always ask, what does Veritas mean? Uh, but I explained to them, it means truth. And when we named that church Veritas, what we meant to say was, we love the truth. We value the truth, the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has given us truth. It's something everybody wants. It's something every image bearer of God is, is looking for, is longing for. Many people give up. But isn't that good news? We have it. We have truth. We don't have to speculate about who God is or who we are. We know what the meaning is of life. We know what the purpose of our life is. We understand how we ought to live because we've been given truth. And so we, we fasten this truth is the image around our waist. We believe this truth. We think truth. We hold truth. We speak truth. John 8, 32. If you abide in my word, Jesus said, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What sets you free? Something else we all want truth sets you free.
Number two, the, uh, the breastplate of righteousness. So there's a breastplate of righteousness. The second half of verse 14, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Okay, this is, this is very important. And I hope we don't miss it. This is not our righteousness. This is not our good deeds. So when you hear, I need, I'm in this battle, I need to put on the breastplate of righteousness, that that's saying you need to be a good person. I'm not saying don't be a good person. That's not what that's saying. It's not saying, oh, I need to be righteous. And if I'm righteous and when I do good, then I've got this breastplate of righteousness on that's going to protect me in this battle. No, remember, this is not your armor. It's available to you. It's given to you, okay, but it's God's armor. So these, this is God's armor that he's made, that he's built, and it's given to you. It's the armor of God, and we put this on. So even this righteousness, it is not yours, it is God's righteousness. But God has given us, this is true, his righteousness. The word the theologians have used is imputation. Christ has imputed his righteousness to us. The perfect life he lived has been credited to us as if we lived a perfect life. That's the righteousness that we put on. So I am righteous when I remember this truth of the gospel. I am righteous, not because of the good that I have done, but because of the good that Christ has done. That righteousness has been credited to my account. That means that I didn't do anything to earn this. It's not compensation. No, there was no money in the account. And then there was money in the account. And I didn't work for it. I didn't earn it. Nothing like that. It was just credited to my account. And so now righteous before God, I'm accepted. I'm adopted into his family. I'm secure. Not because I'm righteous, but because Christ has given me his righteousness. And I need to remember that. It will protect me in this battle. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake... He made him, that is, God the Father made the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's an amazing verse that you could spend the rest of your life thinking about. This is called double imputation, or it's called the, the great exchange. Okay? Because my sin was imputed to Christ and his righteousness was imputed to me through the cross. But who got the better end of that deal? My sin was imputed to Christ. That means he didn't earn it. He didn't deserve that punishment. He never sinned. 
And yet he who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that through his death on the cross, then I might become the righteousness of God. And so if I'm going to fight this fight, and if I'm going to be strong in the Lord, and if I'm going to honor and please him and live the way he's called me to live, I need to have that belt of truth. And now this wonderful piece of truth, this breastplate of righteousness, that I go into this battle not safe and secure because of my goodness, but safe and secure because of God's goodness. Because you're going to have, we've talked about this before, you're going to have good days and bad days. You might have a lot more bad days than good days. You're never going to have a perfect day. So if it was your righteousness, you're going to get slaughtered. So thankfully it's not. It's the righteousness, the perfect impenetrable righteousness of Christ. It's good news. Number three, the shoes. Don't go barefoot. The shoes of readiness. The shoes of readiness. Verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. My daughter, she is 12 years old, and that girl hates shoes. She does not wear shoes. She does not want to wear shoes. She's got the toughest feet you've ever seen. I have like these sensitive, I call them sensitive little girly feet. I can't, we've got, I walk down my house and we have a, a gravel driveway and I can't go get something in my car barefoot because I'm, I'm crying out in pain just walking 10 feet on gravel. So I got to go find shoes. I can't do it. Avery, she never wants to have shoes on. She'll go everywhere without shoes. When it snowed a month ago, you know what she was outside in? Not shoes, walking around in the snow, the hot ground. And she'll, she'll get in my car. We're going to go on an errand in a town, and she'll get in my car without shoes on. Like, girl, what are you doing? You're not ready to go anywhere until you put, Dad, we're just going to this place. It's no big deal. Honey, go put some shoes on. I'm probably spending too much time talking about this. Here's the point. <laughs> Like we really didn't need to know all that. I know. We were just, just sharing. You could, you could put all this armor. Here's the point. It's going to make sense. You could put all this armor on, but you're not ready to go anywhere without shoes on your feet. That's the point. So this is it's important. And I say that because some of this other, you know, sword and belt and breastplate, it's like, oh, this sounds like battle time. And shoes, you might minimize that. No, you're not, you're not actually ready to go anywhere without shoes on your feet. And the shoes, according to Paul, are the gospel of peace. We're down at the, the bottom of this armor here. This is foundational. The gospel is the starting point. Think of it that way. You're not going anywhere without it. You're not going anywhere without the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15.3. It's why Paul said there, for I delivered to you as of first important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. 
It's another really interesting thing when we understand that all scripture is God-breathed, it's all useful, it's all important, it's all from God's word. And so it's very interesting when someone like the Apostle Paul says, I've said a lot of things and here's the most important thing. I don't want to take scripture, you know, I'm hesitant to take scripture and say, oh, this is more important than this. I want to say it's all important and it certainly is. But safe to say, in agreement with the Apostle Paul, out of everything the Word of God says, here's the most important thing the Word of God says, and it is the message of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So we're not going anywhere without that gospel. Number four, the shield of faith. Verse 16, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So what do we do with this gospel? What do we do with this truth? What do we do with the righteousness of Christ? Here's what we, here's what we do with it. Here's the first thing we're taking into our hand now. We believe it. What do we do? It's faith. It's faith. We trust Jesus, this truth, this good news of the gospel, his righteousness, we rely on him. And so we're taking up the shield of faith. And as we take up that shield of faith and believe what we've been told here, then it protects us from, Paul writes, the flaming darts of the evil one. What is that? What are the flaming darts of the evil one? Lies, maybe. Our enemy's called the father of lies. Accusations. We know he makes accusations. Uh, Half truths. Those are very dangerous. These are perhaps the Darts that the enemy, the arrows that the enemy fires our way. He may communicate to us through people, through the world, through our own sinful nature that we are guilty, that we are failures, that we can't do this. The world's picked up on that. The world's picked up on that self-talk. I'm guilty. I'm a failure. I can't do this. And of course, you know the world's answer. The world's answer is you're not guilty. You're not a failure. You deserve this. You can do this. All you've got to do is believe but they mean something very different than we do when we say we believe. Because they say all you need to do is believe in who? You know the end of that sentence. Believe in yourself. That couldn't be more opposite what Scripture teaches. Believe in yourself. Trust your heart. Follow your heart. I hope you know God's Word says to do the opposite of that. The heart is deceptive, Jeremiah 17, 9 says. 
so sick, it's beyond cure. Who can understand it? And the world says, follow it. Believe in yourself. No, believe in Christ. Trust in God. You know what we do with these accusations when we hear them? When we hear you're guilty, you're a failure, you can't do this, and the world says you're not a failure, you're not guilty, you can do this. You know the Christian's response to those accusations? Yep. True. I am guilty. Just give the ground. I am guilty. You know what? I am a failure. I have failed, and I do fail. And you know, you're right. I, I can't do this. I'm guilty. I am a failure. I can't do this. So believing in myself is going to get me nowhere. Now, those things are true. Christian, you know what else is true? Romans 8, 38. I am also more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. So I'm a guilty, I mean, this is scripture. I'm a guilty, failing, incapable, conqueror. Well, how's that? <laughs> in Christ Jesus. So I'm not the victor. I'm not the conqueror. Okay, the strength is not within. The strength is without. The strength is in Christ. And in him, I am even more than, another thing we could think about, even more than a conqueror, victorious, winning this battle, will win this battle in Christ. It's a very different way to live, friends. Number five, two more, the helmet of salvation, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Your helmet is important because it protects the most vulnerable part of your body. And so the helmet we put on is this helmet of salvation. Our great protection in battle is our salvation. We will not be lost. We are saved. Jonah 2, 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not ours. It's not something that we went and took. It was given to us, and it won't be taken from us. We're in the palm of the hand of Christ, and no one, not even our great enemy, could pluck us out of his hand. He who began that good work in us will see it through to completion. Christian, you will not be lost. You won't be lost. We are saved so this helmet is of salvation, 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the assurance of salvation. And you want to strive for that. To have that assurance that peace that comes from knowing I am his and he is mine. I will not be lost in this battle. 
One more. Number six, the sword of the Spirit. Second part of verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword. It's the only part of this armor that is used offensively for attack. Everything else that he's mentioned is defensive in nature, but this is offensive. This word sword, actually, it doesn't describe a broad sword. It's not describing a long sword, which is usually what comes to mind for us when we hear that word. This is a, a more of a short dagger that was used for close combat. So imagine that. This is a shorter sword that would have been sheathed and pulled out and was used for close combat. And so what is in this panoplia, in this armor of God, what is it that we use as a weapon? And the only thing that we use as a weapon, it's the Word of God. The Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is this sword that's able to cut. You've been cut by the word of God. I think the rest of these verses, verses 18 through 20, are closely connected to verse 17. They're describing what we do with this weapon, this sword, which is the word of God. So let me read them with you. I'm reading it with verse 17. Because again, my understanding of these verses is that this is then what we do with this sword, which is the word of God. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and now verse 18, praying. So I'm saying we're praying with the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Here is what Paul is saying. Armed with the word of God, prayer is our primary tactic in spiritual warfare. That's my understanding. You could read five commentaries and you could probably read five different answers as to what is the connection of verses 18 through 20 with verse 17. Okay, So my understanding is the connection here is that armed with that sword, which is the word of God, now we pray. It's not the only thing we do with the word of God, of course, but prayer is our primary tactic here in this battle in this war zone. Ultimately, as we put on the armor of God, the strength of Christ is supplied to us through prayer. We pray for ourselves, for sure, but Paul has in mind here our prayer for one another. That I'm praying for you and you're praying for me and you're praying for each other. In fact, now that he's done with his exhortation, 
Paul inserts a request in verse 19. Pray also for me. He tells him to pray. And he says, would you pray for me? That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And so Paul, as he wraps up this letter, his final request is that the Ephesians would pray for him. So how do we stand strong in the strength of God's might? We put on the armor of God. We take Christ's truth and righteousness and his good news and we trust him. We remember our salvation and we take up his word and pray. After all, this enemy that we face, let us not forget that Christ has defeated him. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, very quickly, here is Paul's final, his final greetings. It's Paul's conclusion. First, some closing remarks where Paul introduces a good friend, Tychicus, who was going to come to them with updates and encouragement, verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And then Paul's last two verses, his last words, which are his final benediction, verse 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. That is Paul's closing benediction as a prayer of blessing for those in Ephesus who love Jesus. And so the same would be true for us. For those of us who love Jesus, I would pray the same thing for you. I'd pray the same thing for me that Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that you would know these four blessings. He lists four blessings there, that you would know peace peace, that you would know peace between you and God. Secondly, love, that you would know the love of Christ. Third, faith, that you would rely on Christ, your Savior, in all of life. And grace, the favor of God, you can't make it through this life without Amen. Are we taking the Lord's Supper today? Good. I thought so. I'm going to read from a, a passage in Luke. 